I had a very classically sport mindset, which, you know, I was helping with a resuscitation. We'd had a car accident and, they, they, you know, as an intern, they're like, hey, we need you to come in here. We need you to do this skill. And I was like, cool. Don't worry about anything. Just focus on the skill, focus on the steps, the skill that it required to execute. Don't worry about the fact that you've got 10 people waiting on you. Don't worry about the fact you've got all the bosses staring at you. Don't worry about the fact that you've got, you know, people screaming. Just so, like zoom in. What are the things you need to do to do it properly? And what are the steps you need to take? double plan it and then you know execute and it was fine it worked fine but all of that was acquired from a mixture of olympic weightlifting and some other coaching aspects right that's all the skills that drew from elsewhere that's david Lippman, an australian trained medical doctor exercise physiologist podiatrist ultramarathon runner and coach who's now working in sports tech i'm ed gibbons co-founder and chief product officer of rewire and I'm Sun Sachs, co-founder and CEO of Rewire, and this is the Rewire Fitness Podcast. Welcome. In this episode, David shares tons of valuable insights for anyone who is interested in improving their sports performance. He discusses his training, coaching methods, ways to cope with mental fatigue, how he uses Rewire to support his performance, how he's balancing his training with work, and gives some recommendations for longevity and health. Let's dive right in. Hey David, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks very much. Really, uh, really appreciate the invite and, and looking forward to the chat. How's it going today? How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Uh, recovering well post-marathon, got out for a run this morning and uh, drank the coffee, so I'm good to go. Awesome, awesome. And how, how are you finding your, your new life in London? How's the slightly more hills, I'd say, than Amsterdam, but still not a lot? <laughs> well, I mean, lots more hills in Amsterdam. That doesn't make it, any, that doesn't make it too, much, too many at all, but, uh, but enjoying it actually uh, got out for a little bit of a bumpy run this morning in, uh, in Richmond Park. So enjoying it, enjoying exploring, um, you know, the Thames, Richmond Park, these sort of running areas. So, uh, yeah, enjoying that part of it, enjoying a little bit less concrete uh, for running and interested to see a training block here and what that looks like and some of the you know advantages I have with some more hills and what that means for me. So pretty excited about that. Yeah, awesome. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting out of, on, a, on a run with you at some point soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. Let me know. Awesome. So we'll kick this off with uh, how we usually like to start on this podcast. Um, you've got quite the CV. Uh, doctor, background in exercise physiology, coach, strength and conditioning, trail runner. Now you're working in sports tech. Uh, lived all over the world, it seems as well. It'd be great if you could just tell us a little bit about your journey to where we, where we are today um, and how you've got there. Yeah, that's... I won't waste the whole podcast on this, but uh, maybe maybe the quick version is uh, loved sport at school, was never really particularly good, did lots of team sports, got into track and field and, and cross country and saw some success there. It was pretty bad, but you know, relatively successful for me, which was good. Uh, from there, you know, my coach quit coaching when I finished school, but I'd been inspired to go coaching. So I wanted to be a coach and a podiatrist. So I went and did podiatry with exercise physiology as a degree, uh, got involved, got a pretty good opportunity early early to work as a strength and conditioning coach just assisting in the school gym where I where I'd gone to school uh, had a really good mentor there and a good boss who really inspired me I ended up very you know very nearly dropping out of university to pursue strength and conditioning more uh, I guess more seriously and had some good opportunities but decided to finish it off went into podiatry um, all the time during that time I was training I'd sort of gotten into lifting weights did a mixture of things Olympic lifting power lifting uh, you know mostly to learn uh for, for my athletes or for the athletes i was coaching uh always kind of ran a little bit on the side um got towards the end of my podiatry studies uh and decided to go into podiatry and just see how it was even though i was pretty sure i wasn't going to like it absolutely hated my first job um in podiatry i just it just didn't click for me i was really struggling at the time personally as well and had a bit of a back injury which prevented me running more than anything i was lifting very heavy and, and having some issues as a result so um got back into some running thanks to a friend of mine who's a physio physio helping me with my back decided to go into medicine took a second job in podiatry to sort of get me into medical school and really enjoyed that still wasn't so sure i wanted to be a doctor uh, i'd always sworn off it my dad's a doctor i'd sworn like i'm never going to be a doctor uh but went in nonetheless um had gotten more into running and then once i got to medical school i was like cool i can be an athlete here uh while i'm studying it's kind of that thing where you take another degree kind of so you can do more training right? you hear this from athletes all the time uh so got into it a lot more in medical school um and was always going to go down a sports medicine route but 
yeah, went through medical school, wasn't so sure. I started trail running in medical school. Someone invited me out for a trail run and it was a bunch of guys who were running at medical school and I was like into roads and I was like, oh, we'll see how we go. Went out, uh, absolutely hated it, thought it was the worst thing in the world because I couldn't get a rhythm, I couldn't look up. Uh, it was really tough. And then the day after I felt amazing physically compared to what I normally felt like from my normal uh, long runs and I thought, oh, there's something in this um, and happened to be living 25 minutes from a really good bunch of trails so really got into it there it did a lot while i was in medical school went traveling once i graduated medical school took a job back in a different state went traveling uh in my holidays there met my now partner so she was living in amsterdam so then i moved over to amsterdam and had you know didn't have a lot of skills outside of that that were transferable so uh ended up coaching some rugby there because i'd done a lot of that previously and you know the quality of rugby in amsterdam meant that i was um, relatively well equipped to coach there and then started working in tech because i you know had an opportunity uh, and uh yeah it's been cool since i'm enjoying tech enjoying all that and I, I guess the, the, the short answer is failed athlete who, who loves to help athletes now because he can't be one. That's probably the, the take home. Yeah, it always amazes me like everything that, everything that goes into a um, successful performance and kind of highlights it there with the variety in jobs that you've had but still sort of staying close to sport. From exercise physiology to strength conditioning to working in tech, like all quite a lot of variety but still with the sort of North Star of sports. Yeah, I think... Um, lots of little weird sort of diversions that help equip you for something else. Like I did a bunch of, you know, sports training for, for teams and worked in a sort of half medical capacity there that helped. And then other similar things like that, uh, that really, it's this little area that you explore that you don't really think much about, but it really then helps you. Um, you know, so my first podiatry job, I, you know, one of the things I did was sell sports shoes. So gaining knowledge there, which then helps you perform later as an athlete yourself or, or help other people. So I don't think there's any wasted learning. I think it's just how you can use that later or what does it teach you or a different way of thinking about things. Awesome. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love talking to you about is just your uh, holistic perspective since you, uh, you, you are an athlete, a modest one, but you had a great performance in Berlin here at the marathon and, um, and also your diverse coaching and medical background. So maybe starting with yourself first and then also as a coach, like what are the common mistakes you see, you know, and what have you learned throughout your career? Yeah, I think common mistakes are the same probably in health as they are in uh, sport and not necessarily ones I made that probably speak to my personality, but uh, definitely some that the people I've worked with have made. I think consistency is the big thing that underpins my coaching that I see as uh, a barrier for a lot of people. I think people want to see, they think, you know, a week worth of a diet is going to make the difference or a week worth of a training program is going to make the difference or a new training program will make the difference. But I think the reality is it's less about what you do as much as it is about being consistent with that. Um, and I think that underpins, you know, if you look at my training, that's a huge through theme. It's, it's how I coach everybody uh, as well. And I think that's a message I've used in health coaching and in, as a doctor as well as the consistent behaviors are really important um, rather than the boom or bust or the, you know, the three month challenge or the eight week this or the whatever. It's kind of, let's be consistent. Let's build a level of consistency, build this into life so it doesn't feel like effort. And then we can layer on top of that and put some more effort in because I think the reality is, you know, when you read into things like decision fatigue and building habits, a lot of it comes down to how can we eliminate this being a decision so that it doesn't take uh, cognitive effort so that we can then get to a stage where we can use that cognitive, you know, work or effort or energy somewhere else. Nice. And talk a little bit about pacing. Cause that's an, a, a common issue in endurance sports. I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I, I think it is. Um, until Mr. Kipchoge ran the fastest time ever on the weekend in the marathon, I would have said that I think, I think it's close to every record from 800 meters and above, or maybe it's 1500 and above it has been negatively split. So that should give some insight into what's required there. If we're honest, I don't think necessarily negative splitting is optimal as much as it's somewhat risk averse compared to even splitting because even splits are very hard to do, right? There's, there's literally only one way to do that is, is, is one outcome, but negative splitting can be of different um, magnitudes. And I think the goal of a negative split will generally keep you conservative early such that you can then pace well in the last portion and feel good. I mean, I haven't done a lot of that. It depends on how you view Boston as a course. If you view Boston as, um, you know, with the context of where the hills are and the fact that the first half is downhill, I probably 
what most people would consider close to negatively splitted that. Uh, but other than that, I've never negatively splitted today. Oh, sorry, in, in Berlin I did. Uh, it was 20 to 40 seconds somewhere in there. I can't remember exactly, but it was, you know, that was great. I felt it was by far the easiest I've ever found a marathon, uh, despite it being the fastest I've ever run and have pulled up really well from it. And some of that you can't negate the effects of just training age as well, right? I've run more marathons, I'm better equipped. But yeah, I think the discipline to run slow enough early um, and really dial that in his heart. And I was very, you know, I didn't, because I'd moved to London, a lot of my key marathon sessions that I had been doing in Amsterdam, where they would give me a really good insight into what pacing looked like, were done in Richmond Park here, which is a bit, you know, it's not super hilly, but compared to Amsterdam, it's positively mountainous. So it's really hard for me to understand what that pace converted to because there's no pace converters from this Strava will give you a gap pace or whatever but it's all an estimation because you know running economy is different uphill downhill flat for everybody um so i was hard but you know i was running in the first portions of the marathon running much quicker than i should be and i thought am i running too fast and i really took stock i was like look what's my heart rate okay it's good and it's a cool day so that's a good thing and i took stock of my breathing and thought Oh, I can kind of nose breathe here, sort of that gear three they talk about in in through the nose, out through the mouth, uh, or even periods of just no, nasal only breathing. And I thought, okay, that's probably a good intensity, and I feel like I'm at the right intensity. So let's see how we go here, and hope we can maintain it. And it turns out I ran super even splits across that um, right up until 39 kilometers, and was with a couple of guys who were, I was pacing with, and I sort of said, guys, we've got 12 minutes left, let's go. And they sort of said, oh, we're not in great shape here. And I said, okay, well, I'll see you guys at the finish and uh, took off and ran really well, ran really fast the last three kilometers for me, uh, passed quite a few people. And uh, yeah, it was a good day. But yeah, that pace discipline is difficult to coach people for. I worked with a coach, one of the few people that coached me, and he used to do a lot of intervals with me where he would say, well, with the group that I was with, and he would say, you've got to beat, your distance back so we'd go out and back for a period of time say two minutes and go out to back two and he'd say you have to beat come back past the finish the start point but he would say that requires you running slower earlier not burning yourself later and i think that sort of thing is is perhaps the only way you can really develop it is understanding what pace for or effort for time will give you so you can really dial that in nice awesome yeah consistency um me and Sun chatted about that a lot. We also had uh, Eloise Duluart, who I know you know, uh, know well on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she said the same thing, like just be average every day and, and it starts adding up. And obviously, consistency is a key part of it, but you're training for quite a variety of marathons, doing Marathon de Mont Blanc uh, to Berlin, like very different sort of terrains there and different sort of undulations. How are you building that in, in terms of uh, preparation for each? Yeah, look, to be honest, my preparation for Marathon du Mont Blanc was suboptimal, I would say, to say the least. Um, I, it's a race I've been wanting to do for a while. I've been entering the lottery for a while. My partner had an entry, so it was kind of, we were going to go there. I love Chamonix, so we were just going to go and I was going to run and enjoy it uh, and kind of treat it like a long run rather than too much of an event. But, you know, the gun goes off and you get competitive because that's what happens. Um, so... I had to develop pretty early when I moved to Amsterdam. I lived there for four years, and just as I got there, we were going to go race um, the Montreux Sky, uh, the Montreux Trail Festival. There's a sky run there, which is 34, maybe a bit longer kilometers, with like 3,000 meters of gain in it and loss. It was really steep and really technical, and started to play with how can I develop training that will in the flats that will sustain me for the for the mountains, right? Because you can't nod and look there's a mountain oh sorry a hill in Amst in the netherlands which you have to go travel hours towards and it's, it's not particularly high and you know whatever so that wasn't really an option so i thought okay the uphill we can do we can run uphill on a treadmill we can do stairmaster um you know with a variety of stairs to gain that uphill hiking efficiency to some extent so i would swap some running volume for that and then it was okay how do i develop the eccentric load tolerance that's required to run downhill for an extended period of time and then that was some really slow building through phases of really slow eccentric bilateral into into unilateral lower limbs to, uh, work and then building in some extra hip stability on some single leg work to really help prevent excessive lateral and uh, transverse plane movement and then moving that into some uh, eccentric dominant plyometrics so depth jumps that sort of stuff depth jumps onto a single leg to really try and build that over a period of three four months to see if i could tolerate the load and that seemed to work quite well so i kept using that and evolving that to be honest with marathon du mont blanc we spent a month there prior to the race so it was a little bit easier because i kind of did a bit of that and then turned up to chamonix and just ran and you know went uphill went downhill and, and was pretty fine with that 
I definitely wasn't equipped, like standing on the start line, talking to some people who were there who lived in mountainous areas and about them running, say, Boston. They're like, hey, I ran this time at Boston. You should be aiming much higher for Marathon du Mont Blanc. And then them absolutely smoking me at Marathon du Mont Blanc. It was pretty clear I hadn't done the prep I needed. So that was more fun than it was anything else. But the way I envisaged it uh, this year was, you know, I had Boston in April, which was a, a big goal. And I got an entry to Berlin and an entry to Marathon du Mont Blanc. And they were pretty tight turnarounds. It was kind of... 10 weeks to Marathon du Mont Blanc from Boston and about the same maybe to Berlin. So I kind of treated Marathon du Mont Blanc as an aerobic base kind of off-season phase towards Berlin more than I did really specifically try and target it as a performance thing. So that's kind of how I thought about it and how I prepped for it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, yeah, impressive across off, across both. Um, so awesome. I'm going to say conscious as uh, a lot of our listeners are the same uh, you're balancing a lot between sort of long runs a lot of work as well pretty time crunched on all fronts how do you sort of approach that balance yeah i think just to touch on something that probably trans- transverses both the previous question and this question that i forgot to mention uh, that i wanted to touch on is i use a kind of concurrent style of training where i don't really do a lot of um huge like traditional linear periodizations where i'm trying to kind of hit all things at all times to some degree like i'll do vo2 max work most of the year i'll do threshold work most of the year and strength work most of the year as well i don't really work in significant phases i'll sort of always have a component of all of those trying to develop them all concurrently and maintain a level of readiness that's fairly high and then peak towards things very acutely so that's kind of how i approach it it's a very eastern block influence strength and conditioning approach to an endurance problem that most strength, uh, most endurance coaches probably yeah, don't really uh, use or appreciate that said i you know in and a marathon block specifically i do a lot of extra threshold work to prep specifically for marathon pace and marathon work but back to the question around how do you manage work and all that stuff i think you've just got to exercise and my health is a priority and you know when making a decision between performance or health my balance of decisions will fall onto the health front so that's why i still do as much strength work as i do particularly upper body stuff it's not helping my marathoning i'm heavy for a marathoner Uh, i'm like 82 kilograms i should not be running you know i have no business running uh as long and as much as i do so and i'm also quite short i'm not like a 6'4 82 kilo guy i'm like 5'11 on a good day it's more like 5'10 to be honest so um you know, I'm, I'm pretty short as well, and I've got short legs for a torso length. So, but the, the point I'm making is, you know, I'm not, I'm not built for marathons. So, and, and I'm choosing for health. So that, that's how I make those decisions. But given health's a priority, then it's how do I manage things? Um, I try, you know, now that I work uh, East Coast hours mostly, East Coast US hours, and I'm living, it's a little bit better in London. It was not as good in um, Amsterdam. I pretty much only train once a day i can only really sustain that because of having to work evenings whereas previously when i was coaching i could train twice a day on a couple days a week and so my sessions are probably a little bit longer got a bit more volume than they used to have but fundamentally it's pretty similar um i try and move as much as possible outside of training right so i've got a dog i walk him you know try and walk to train stations ride bikes to places at you know while i was living in amsterdam i was probably commuting 100 kilometers a week on a bike uh just volume of commuting just by virtue of that's what living there's like Uh, a lot of it on a folding bike take what you want from that in terms of aerobic development it's also for me training is probably stress release as well it's probably a, a gain there i know for some people it's it sort of costs them it probably restores me a little bit uh, i know if i don't train i train pretty much every day a year there would be i think this year i'll probably end up with six to ten days that i don't train on across a year and 365 days so i just try and i guess build consistency that way and then let that work rather than doing these blocks where i'm doing magic volumes and and double sessions my running volume would be 60 k's on a low week and 100 k's 110 k's on a high week that'd be it like that's not a lot of variance for people um it's probably again not enough volume for me to really perform much better than i am in the marathon if i'm honest i probably need to add 30 to 60 kilometers plus if i really want to get down to 230 or something like that in a marathon which it's I'm not even sure it's possible for me. But um, yeah, so try to build it into the day and use fatigue when it comes. So on a day where you have mental fatigue or you have a day where you've had mental fatigue from the day before is firstly understand that that may not be the day that you want to do quality work or key sessions or try and acquire new skills. It may be that that day you need to take it a bit easier uh, and just, you know, stay consistent, do something, but may not, you know, may have to change the plan a little bit because, you know, until I'm a professional athlete, uh, which probably doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, Tom Brady, maybe, you know, I've got some time, but until I'm a professional athlete, work has to get done and has to be a priority. So 
letting that be the priority and then working around that, dealing with the mental fatigue as you do, uh, prepping appropriately, trying to do things to recover, be it mindset recovery sessions, extra sleep. If you can take a nap, then that's the case. I mean, the cost of me working East Coast times is no double session days, but the benefit is I've got till you know midday or 1 p.m. to myself so I can get a training session in, eat properly, spend some time with the family, you know, get a nap in or something like that if I need to um, or do some work at that time right, and get some work, some deep work done. So just trying to work with the constraints you're in to optimize for what you have. Yeah, for sure. That that sort of, um, I guess, five hours in the morning of just um, a little bit more flexibility and uh, pretty devoted time to training, I find super helpful as well, being in a pretty similar position to you there. Yeah, me, I just uh, juggle things. <laughs> I wish I had that extra four or five hours in the morning. But exactly, that's that's the solution for sure. Um, but yeah, I, yeah I, I choose health and wellness and consistency too. And if I have to break up two workouts into one or, or vice versa, then it is what it is, you know? You did mention uh, mental fatigue. And I know we've been working together for a while in terms of that. And you have a, a very grounded perspective. Maybe you could share a little bit about the mental side of sport and then also what things you like about uh, Rewire uh, as it relates to supporting that. Mental fatigue in sport, geez, I think it's it's huge. I think it's underdone as well. I think it's um, something we don't really talk about. I remember, and, and it's hard to quantify sometimes. I think some people have – I'll never forget this kid I coached. He'd worked overnight. Uh, he'd worked the full night and turned up to a game of play rugby and played. And he was our best player on the field. He was unbelievable that day. And I never forget thinking, like, we don't quite get this. We don't get readiness and we don't get performance and we don't get – like what fatigue and, and mental prep is there seems to be those people you know when the lights are on they perform better right and they deal with pressure well and and they're you know, I, I would say they're very mentally fit and then there's those people and i was the opposite when i was uh, you know i i got over aroused i never performed when i was young you know when i was 16 17 18 i was just i couldn't perform i'd get i'm an anxious personality and i would get over anxious right so if you saw me before berlin or you saw me before boston or you saw these and when i say before i'm not just talking about the hours before i'm talking the week before i'm the opposite of that i couldn't I, i'm trying to not control anything and just be as relaxed as possible, not let anything bother me. Cause I know if I turn up to the start line, half asleep, relaxed, that's where I'm going to hit optimal performance. Whereas if I turn up having made it a big deal and I'm over hyping and over anxious about it, I'm going to really struggle. So I try and let go of everything there as a, you know, the work I've done personally in terms of understanding my personality. So that's, that's kind of where I think we're at with mental fitness, mental fatigue. And if you want to see mental fatigue really come to the fore in my life, where I've seen it is, or, or mental performance is watching surgeons like just go in, hammer out surgery after surgery the whole day. They get there early, they finish late. They, they're very process oriented and, and can very much do it. And some of that's autopilot and skill development that they've had, but they are impressive humans. And it's one of the reasons I refuse to go that way was I wasn't that personality and I didn't really I mean I didn't like that look of what life looks like for them so that wasn't uh, what I wanted to do but in terms of them developing it I think it can be developed passively or actively right and and rewire helps you develop it actively as you get to work specifically on it I think training helps with that as well and if you look at the approach I take to my marathon preparation it's very much that it's can we do extended work at marathon efforts sustain that whether it's mentally or physically or both. And to be honest, it's harder mentally than it is physically to do that. You know, if you're doing blocks of 10 kilometers at marathon pace with very little rest between, that's mental work when you're by yourself. There's no crowds, no paces. Yes, you're nailing nutrition and stuff, but it's how can you stay focused? How can you keep pushing? Uh, so a lot of that's mental approach that I've taken there. And then when I started using Rewire, I, I just really love like the neuro training aspects. And I do it, I know it hasn't quite come out yet, but you guys have thankfully give me some early access buttons and uh and using them running has been i mean that's fun like i just enjoy that it makes it very engaging i felt found it very mindful a lot of flow with that you get to use them in in london now that i've got streets to cross and that sort of stuff it was a little bit easier and where i lived in amsterdam and just running you know up a canal i understand how to stay away from bikes and it was pretty easy um i need to pull them out here and work out where i can use them and how i can use them appropriately without getting you know hit by a bike or something like that but um rest assured i will do because i love that stuff it was super great my neighbors probably thought i was a bit weird yelling when i made a mistake with uh, the neuro training but <laughs> i really enjoyed that um I'm a huge fan of binaural beats anyway. Like I'm often listening to binaural beats playlists on Spotify when I'm trying to do deep work. So I've really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. And 
Uh, I, I see you both liked my uh, my Strava upload before the marathon where I used a prep session before the marathon. That was really cool. I really enjoyed that. That was cool. Right on. That's awesome. Um, and you you also uh, spend a lot of time evaluating tech products. Like uh, I know you're a performance nerd like we are. What are some of the criteria you use, like, you know, from opening up the box to really checking out the product? How, how do you like to look at things? It's funny you mentioned that. I won't mention the company. I've just uh, started using a new product or just you know, just bought a new product to, to use. And my experience has very different working in tech because I understand what things like customer support look like and I understand how things like welcome emails are triggered. So when you have the, you know how the sausage is made, you look at things very differently. So I'll, I'll spare the, the audience who doesn't necessarily have that insight. But in terms of um, how I like to look at stuff from a tech point of view, it's probably the first lineation I make is this hardware or software or both. And there, I think if you understand that there's, there's a huge difference, right? Those two things are very different and I, I won't mention anything, but there's competitors in the market, not necessarily with rewire, but with each other where there's, you know, one that they're seen as competitors, but one's really hardware and one's really software. And I think the problems they solve are different as a result of that. So looking at hardware or software, I think they feel different and they, you know, the hardware has to work. If it's software, it's really what's it giving me insight wise. If it's hardware, it's, it's what's it measuring. We generally aren't measuring what we say we're measuring. And, you know, the classic example is PPG, the technology that's used for heart rate. That's not measuring heart rate. It's measuring changes in light. And when you understand what is being measured and then what we're making it mean, which is we're measuring changes in light, which shows us the waveform of heart rate right? So it's not measuring heart rate. It's measuring waveforms of light. When you understand that, you start to understand the constraints of it and why it may not work or why it may work or why you see data that you would otherwise be, uh, you otherwise think is wrong, right? So a good example, you got a big uh, watch on your wrist. You're trying to use wrist-based heart rate. It's bouncing around like crazy and you go, oh, the heart rate's terrible. And you go, well, it's actually measuring great changes in light. It's just that the watch is moving. And I mean, the secondary the, the factor that trumps that again on the wrist is that the anatomy in that area is bad for uh, for heart rate because the anatomy is not consistent. So it's really hard to measure heart rate there. I think that's probably what are we trying to measure? What are we claiming is the case? And then, you know, where are sources for error here? So uh, that's kind of how I think about it. And then you start to use it over a period of time, which is after you've made the decision to buy, right? Which is hard for people because, you know, when you buy something, you kind of want to use it. It's hard to then say six months in, like, actually, this isn't so good, right? So at that point is it's kind of, is this giving me insights I can actually use, right? Can I actually use what this is telling me? Is there any insights I'm gaining or is this just cool? And, and both of them are reasons to use it. They just give you different things. Let's be honest. Like if it helps you get out the door because it's cool, right? Like a new pair of shoes, you may not perform better, but yeah, great. Now I'm getting out the door because I want to use these. Awesome. Like that's also good. We've got a problem with not enough people doing enough exercise. So if we need to give you a new bike computer to make you ride, like awesome, go for it. Uh, happy days. But I'm also very uh, traditionalist and pretty minimalist on some stuff. Like I like things that are simple. I think some examples of GPS watches, for example, are you know, they measure golf courses and you can do all sorts of stuff with it. It's like, hang on, man, does it have good enough battery life? Does it measure my run accurately? And, you know, I don't need a lot else. I don't need all sorts of weird, funky things that I'm just never going to use. So I try and keep it pretty simple with that stuff and, and clean. Nice. Makes sense. Awesome. I'm curious, given your given your background, and uh, we also get sent a lot of studies from you as well directly, but um I'm really curious how you approach research and in particular sort of reading studies and evaluating them and yeah, just sort of how you, how you approach reading a study. So not like I should is the answer anymore, but um, how I would if I had the, the time and the bandwidth and, and what I would like to do is, is actually how my a resource mentor of mine taught me is kind of throw away the abstract, uh, read the methods, decide after the methods if that's actually something you want to read before you've read anything else and then look at the results section um, you know, do some digging into the statistical methods used and whether they're actually going to be able to tell you what you need and then, you know, look at the outcomes and go, okay, what do the research say? And then, and then I turn to read the discussion. Um, and then often if I want to dig more into it, I'll read the introduction to look at what are we, you know, what are the papers should I be reading in the space? What have they referenced that I may have missed? 
depending on the situation, if it's something I don't understand, then the introduction often gives you some good context that you may otherwise not understand. But I read pretty broadly, but if to some extent, but also quite narrowly to some extent, right? Like it's all kind of stuff I know about already to some extent. So whether that's broad or narrow is hard for me to say, but, you know, scientists would say I'm pretty broad. Um, the world would say I'm probably pretty narrow. It's sports, it's health, it's, you know, some areas within there. So um, I've generally got some context to start with um, and then look at it from there. Awesome. Yeah, it's um, great you said that. That's pretty much exactly how Dr. Tommy Wood, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, um, said it as well, just, you know, really focusing on the, the methods and the results and then, you know, all the fluffy stuff around that you can read after and, and, and enjoy, but really evaluating the quality and, and the, the purpose, I guess, in the, in the methods and results as a priority. Science has never been more available, which is cool. Uh, the problem with that is it's never it's not about knowledge anymore it's about skills and how we understand things and we haven't equipped the population and when i say that scientists doctors all these people are part of the population right and they've all got varying skills and i profess to be no level of expert in this i am absolutely not i don't have a phd i've done very minimal research myself um you know anybody who's done real research work or anything like that would laugh at my qualifications in this space but nonetheless um do my best to, to, you know, learn and read. And I think understanding statistical methods and understanding the methods of even testing, like what are we testing? A good example in, in exercise literature is so much like time to exhaustion tests. Time to exhaustion tests are pretty handy, but let's be honest, we don't do that. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to go faster. We're not trying to go for as long as possible with no discernible end time. So motivation is a huge part of it. We're trying to go fast. Like, does it does it make me go faster or not? It doesn't matter how long I can go for. I don't want to run a half marathon over a longer period of time. I want to run it over a short period of time. So just a little thing like that is like, how are they testing this? And does it even make sense? Um, so I think understanding that sort of stuff is is pretty important. And, uh, you know, let's be honest, sports science literature has been variably helpful helpful uh, in some of these areas because you know unfortunately if you don't have a positive study it's probably not getting published there's a huge bias towards showing an effect rather than not um, there's no real incentive to replicate studies which is a big issue for us in science um, understanding these factors and then understanding i i think understanding the context uh, of anecdata and, and real world stuff like what a coach is doing right i once heard a coach say you know it's about 30 years between the, what the elites are doing and then what actually filters through to science, right? And, and understanding that people whose job depends on it have a vested interest in getting it right. That doesn't always mean that they get it right, but success leaves clues. It's pretty unlikely that we're going to see a training program that is vastly different, like categorically polar opposite to what Kipchoge is doing because he's got a vested interest in doing it. He's doing it really well and he's done it for, well for a long time. Yes, he's genetically gifted and all those things, but he's not doing everything wrong. He's doing a lot of stuff right. And, you know, without that understanding, you know, we should, yeah, it, it's part of it. It should guide some of where we, our research goes. Yeah, awesome. That yeah, makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's look ahead to the future. Are there areas of research or technology or both that you're excited about or you're, you're imagining would come to the forefront at some point? Uh, lots of stuff in different areas. I think um, the easy answer is big data, right? That's everyone's easy answer. Uh, but it, to be more specific, I think big data looking at correlations to then point us in the right direction to improve research outcomes, right? So if we look at a whole bunch of data sets or a really big data set and then see a bunch of sig what looks like signal in that otherwise noisy fields can we move into that and is there something that we should be researching there rather than uh, approaching it a different way so using big data to inform you know the first sifting and sorting of ideas to look for for re you know real relationships that are causal rather than associative i think is, is a huge potential and i think that that's one way to go about it if you look at that in what that means for health i think that looks like using a bunch of data from free living people who are using multiple different interventions and living a life rather than using single drugs in, in a lab setting, right? So looking at how that affects things. And a classic example is polypharmacy. So once you take more than three drugs, you're almost certain that they're going to start interacting, right? And, and this gets worse as the more drugs you take. The problem with that is doctors know this, but they also can't decide which one to not give you. Right, so if you've got diabetes and you've got high blood pressure and you've got some and you've got heart disease, like it's really hard to not give you three or four drugs, right? So looking at the free living effects of that, if they are going to interact, is that going to be significant? And how do we decide which one not to use, right? And you can only do that with enormous data sets, and they need to be in free living people because people are free living; they're not not part of a lab. So there's that. In terms of where sports science is going, I'm really interested to see like a lot of what Rewire is doing, really looking at how 
the interface of psychology, neurology, and then other aspects of physiology, call that endurance, cardiovascular aspects, how they're starting to interplay. I was at a rugby game two nights ago uh, watching a game uh, with my parents who are visiting at the moment. And my dad said to me, these guys train so much and they do all sorts of training through the week. Why are they doing it now? Right, he's watching them do all sorts of skill-based stuff. And I said, you know, and he played a bunch of cricket and, and squash. And I said, it's the same reason that you used to hit the ball before you went out to play cricket was, you know, you need to like get your eye in, get your skill up, start executing, right? Is how can we start quantifying that is the interface of, yes, it's not just about getting your heart rate up and getting your muscles ready to go, but like how, how, what's a warm up need to look like? How do we need to switch on, right? Uh, as a young, arrogant uh, coach, I remember my athletes were busy stretching at one point. I spoke to um, a very good 200-meter hurdler slash sprinter who is now coaching as well, a guy called Daryl Walson, who nobody outside of Australia, probably most Australians don't know, but ran a really good 200 in Sydney against Addo Bolden, who's arguably the best 200-meter runner of all time in many people's you know views in terms of the bend running. And Daryl ran really fast and, and almost beat him on the bend. And I remember saying to Daryl, of course these girls are warming down. They're static stretching. Like, why would they be doing that in a warm-up? And Daryl just looked at me and he goes, you sports science graduates, you guys have got no idea. He said, I've watched somebody run a 200-meter world record after static stretching half an hour and uh understanding the difference between what you know maybe physiologically it's not perfect but psychologically it's very helpful you know we need to start quantifying that and really understanding that aspect of emotion psychology all that aspect on performance and the and the best kind of get it right the best coaches are inherently psychologists and those sort of things but how do we bring that into coach education because coach education isn't about tactics and technical aspects it's it's it well it is at the moment it shouldn't be all about that i guess yeah and there's a lot, I think from a coaching perspective, there's a lot of evolution happening as um, really people start to look at uh, athletes as individuals. You know, we had a great talk with Kyle Corver and he talked about how he would just shoot until he felt right. You know, for him, it wasn't like I have to hit, you know, a certain number of shots. It's just like, I just want to feel, you know, I want to feel in that flow. And it was a very individualized approach that worked exceptionally well for him. And he also talked about how in earlier years in sport, the coaches would have all the athletes do the exact same thing, very regimented, right? And and somehow that's supposed to translate into this like uh, incredible consistency across all players, but every player is different. Every player needs something different. What you're saying definitely resonates, yeah. I think when you put guardrails in like that, right, you say everyone has to do the same thing, it's going to lower your lowest performance, right? It'll bring up your floor, but it probably drops your ceiling as well, right? The truly the best are probably going to be brought down a little bit, right? Which in some regards, you may say, hey, actually, that's that's what exactly what we want. We want everyone, you know, sort of middling in this stuff because we'd rather, pr- we'd prefer to not have the, the, the lowest end, but it really narrows that, that bandwidth, I think. And, and individualizing is hard, but I think if we can get there, we really nail it. Uh, and the best coaches do. You hear them. You know, you'll hear things like, "Oh, but it doesn't apply to him." And everyone goes, "Well, it should." And everyone needs it, right? Everyone gets treated differently, and that's not a bad thing. That's a positive thing. Mm. Yeah, the um, sort of modifying, well, not modifying, but really approaching the the warm up as a way to get in the right mindset is a, um, I think, really key. I, I um, know a great cricket coach, and and one of the things they do before a game with their team is this sort of modified touch rugby one touch rugby um whichever if you ever played is a bit of a nightmare because <laughs> typically you want to have at least a couple touches to make a fluent game but ultimately cricket is one of those things where if you get out you're out so if you can get into this sort of mindset of like um you know one chance here and and sort of approach your mindset in terms of that you know not rush straight up and, and sort of pass it around a bit you know ease it out in the same way that in a cricket game, in a sort of long test match, you're not looking to slog balls. You're looking to be in for as long as possible and, and ultimately eke your runs up bit by bit, but essentially protect yourself from, from getting out. And it sort of brings you into that same mindset. So completely different sport and obviously not, not, not sort of applicable in terms of a training standpoint, but very interesting and, and valuable for sort of getting your mindset in the right state for, for what you're about to do. Yeah, there's a great video on uh, Twitter for those who haven't seen it with the, I think he's an American guy, he's a strength and conditioning coach for the Dutch women's volleyball team. And he does this warm up for them and you can Google it and it's awesome. He does all sorts of dancing and all sorts of funny moves as a result of things. And they're all laughing and excited and then playing. But, but this is how you 
you know, you've got to understand your athletes, right? What do these athletes need? Do they need to have a very serious warm up? Or do they need to have a one where they're laughing and enjoying it and playing? And is that mood really important for their performance? And how does this emotion play into things? Because if you're happy, you're going to make different decisions than if you're worried or if you're risk averse or all those things, right? So that understanding of that mindset and, and how we prepare athletes is so important. And it's just, it's difficult. Like as a young coach, you're just like, what, what does a warm up look like? Tell me how to do a warm up. And, you know, as you become an advanced coach, it's kind of like, yeah, exactly. But as you, you know, and you think it's all about what's done, right? Like which drill is the best for, and it's, you know, as you gain experience, uh, you know, and experience is the name everyone gives to their mistakes. As you gain, gain experience, you start to realize, okay, this isn't as important as I think perhaps, you know, it only takes one time when you're running late, you don't get to warm up. The guys quickly get changed in the car and then run out and play a game and win. And you go, Oh, wow. Maybe this warm up isn't what I thought it, how important it thought it was. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, given your background in, in rugby and obviously I'm a little biased here too, but, um, just touching on your point about arousal earlier, like it's one of those really interesting sports rugby because there's such a balance between almost like aggression's the wrong word, but like high impact sort of play and then and then sort of this long sort of endurance slog over 80 minutes and um, also being calm on the ball, calm under pressure, but then also, you know, hitting someone hard. It's like this this strange balance in arousal levels and definitely like both can work well. Um, I've had some great games where I've been, you know, something's annoyed me and I've been a little bit on, on the edge of sort of that tip of that spear of arousal, not over aroused, but a top end. And then also had some great games where I've been calm and sort of on the lower end. So so it's this really interesting balance between the two. Yeah, I think some of that's positional in rugby as well. You know, if you're in the forward pack, you probably need to be a little bit more aroused, and a little bit more aggressive. Whereas if you're, uh, you know, a goal kicker, you need the opposite. You need to be super relaxed and ha- happy to do it. So, and then there's personality types within that, right? And, and you know, I won't get into to, too much of that. But I think you know, I've definitely seen people who need to be super relaxed and laughing pregame. And if you can facilitate that, that's great. Um, and then people who get, you know, over anxious and over aroused, they're going to make, you know, I was one of these people, I would over aroused, I was playing in the forward pack, I'd make stupid decisions, I'd do something, I'd give away a penalty, the exact opposite of what you need. You know, I would have been better off being a lot more happy and excited and a lot less aggressive and angry and ready to, you know, rip someone's head off. I think understanding that and understanding players, like I had a very good player that arguably one of the better players I coached in the Netherlands. And it took me some time, but I worked out, you know, he was a key attacking player, but he would play best if i said to him all i need you to do is defend well and get into the game with your defense early and then he would all of a sudden attack better i think maybe because the pressure was off him in attack or something like that but on those games right i said listen just focus on your defense and, and get into the game defending early he would play much much better and he was a back not a forward so that was really interesting ultimately it was pretty simple to get him to perform which was helpful for me because you know, he was a key player for us but um that took some time yeah, and sometimes that's that can be pretty challenging when you've got the sort of team environment too. You know, there's there's 15 players, 15 different minds, all unique in their approach. I mean, I just like sort of sitting in the in the changing room sometimes doing some of our, our mindset recovery stuff because it gives us that's gives me that sort of individual approach and and allows me to tailor it to me. Um, but definitely challenging from like a coaching standpoint to really create something that's uh, that works for the entire team when everyone's so different and everyone works better at different sort of arousal levels different um, you know with different warms up warm-ups and and things like that I think it's, the tough thing is it's, it's a little bit easier when you're coaching adults because they've generally got a level of self-awareness right so you're a good example right if I was coaching you it'd be it's like all right Ed, you, you've got X amount of time to do what you need to do you be you, you warm yourself up in that respect and you need to be ready to go. And you, I, I tended to give people some time pre and post warm up, right? So you've got X amount of time pre warm up to do whatever you need to do. We've got a team warm up, and then you've got X amount of time post warm up. So you have some time that is standard to do your own bespoke aspects. That's a real challenge with kids because I've coached anywhere from 13 year olds and, and younger through, you know, people who are older than me who are, you know, 40 when I was still playing rugby when I was, you know, 19 coaching them and, it's a little bit easier when they're a bit older. They know what they need to do. The challenge is for young coaches, right? And, and we've got too many of our good coaches coaching men and, and women, not uh, boys and girls, right? We need a lot more better coaches lower down. But the challenge is how do you explain and develop that in a in a child, right? How do you speak to a 13-year-old kid and go like, hey, you, 
this is what arousal is over under and you need to get work out where you fit best and how you perform best right because they just want to go out and have fun but that learning is probably more important for sport because that's going to transfer into work it's going to transfer into job interviews it's going to transfer into those things and ultimately for the bulk majority of people uh you know school sport or sport while you're at school is about developing skills for life and that sort of thing performance and what it takes to perform is important right i remember when i was in working in an emergency room I had a very classically sport mindset, which, you know, I was helping with a resuscitation. We'd had a car accident and, they, they, you know, as an intern, they're like, hey, we need you to come in here and we need you to do this skill. And I was like, cool, don't worry about anything. Just focus on the skill, focus on the steps of the skill that it required to execute. Don't worry about the fact that you've got 10 people waiting on you. Don't worry about the fact you've got all the bosses staring at you. Don't worry about the fact that you've got, you know, people screaming. Just so, like zoom in. What are the things you need to do to do it properly? And what are the steps you need to take? double plan it and then you know execute and it was fine it worked fine but all of that was acquired from a mixture of olympic weightlifting and some other coaching aspects right that's all the skills that drew from elsewhere that's what we want from you know physical education if you want to call it that and that's going to be more than just the the curriculum at school that's going to be all the sport you do as a young adult as a you know as a teenager so i think that's where we need to get to is how do we empower people with the skills for life for sure yeah it's uh, the best time to, to sort of learn those skills yeah, and in, in, incredibly helpful tools. Uh, go back to Kyle Corver, who's always an inspiration. He actually has his kids do box breathing on the way to school in the car, which is so smart, right? <laughs> let's, yeah, let's let, you know, let's get into a homeostasis. Let's tone down the anxiety and let's have a good day. Um, you know, these skills are really helpful. But shifting gears a little bit um, beyond performance, like what are some of the things that you think are important longevity wise and health and wellness wise? And how do you incorporate them into your everyday? Yeah, I think, look, sleep's the big one. I don't think there's a debate around sleep. So focusing on sleep and what that you know, what you need to do to sleep well. And that'll be a mixture of things. It's evening routines, it's daytime routines. Uh, and recently was a little bit sleep deprived and a little bit too enjoying my cold brew coffee and subsequently had a bit too much cold brew a bit too late in the day and had my first really bad sleep night as a result of caffeine. And that was an eye opener. So I pulled me back into a bit of line with uh, some discipline around caffeine. But yeah, I think, so sleep is, is key. I think, you know, I'm an unabashed exercise advocate fan uh i just don't think i don't really believe in too much exercise i know there's j-shaped curves and stuff that people will talk about i'm just not convinced we get there in, unless you're you know there's an australian marathoner who's also works full-time as a tradesman maybe he's getting close but i doubt it exercise is key and i think strength training is underrated as part of that i think most people don't exercise enough of the people who are i'd say a portion of them are probably not doing enough strength training and it's probably a large portion of those people i'd say 60 percent or so maybe more um and this is including elite marathon runners who will say things like oh yeah the strength training doesn't help and it's like yeah sure not at the moment for maybe for your performance that you can tell but there there is research suggesting it might help your running economy and there's definitely research saying it's probably going to help you you know in the long run so i think i'd say that's the low-hanging fruit i'd say diet look there's lots of arguments in diet and what is good and bad but no one is advocating for more junk food no one's advocating for more processed food so start start from the commonalities right no one's advocating more boxes of food so like let's go from let's start that way um there's some debate about vegetables i'm not convinced that it's bad but look probably eating more vegetables is helpful and i'd say with diet one thing is to probably not be so anxious about it and this is something i've definitely been victim of is trying to be too perfect and there's probably a net you know a net there where you're probably getting more detriment to some of the stress than you are from being a little bit better on your diet. So I'd sort of think about that. Trying to keep a commonalities go that way. And then we all enjoy, well, not all of us, but many people enjoy some amount of alcohol. It's probably no safe amount. Uh, I say that as someone who enjoys some amount. So, you know, take what you want from that. Um, do as I, I say, not necessarily as I do, perhaps. I, I think stress management in our modern society is really big. Um, and you need to do something for stress management. Some people say it's meditation. Some people say it's, you know, something else. I think you've got to find whatever that looks like for you. Some people it's going to be exercise. Some people hate exercise, whatever it is, you need to be doing that. And I think, uh, a glass of wine and social media probably isn't as stress relieving as it feels. I would consider that as well. I think, um, managing stress and, and dealing with your own personality and understanding yourself is really, really big knowledge of self. And then of course, in terms of longevity, like the research, you need community, uh, you need a sense of purpose. Like these things are, these, these are true. Like there, there's not a lot of debate around this stuff. So yeah. Awesome list. Uh, it's, um, that cumulative stress and load is something that, uh, we all need to be extremely, uh, take, take very seriously without a doubt. And that's, um, 
certainly something we try to help with with rewire if you're just taking a couple of minutes a day or multiple sessions that are a few minutes long per day just to check in just to um, disconnect and um, and be a little bit mindful it makes a big difference you know it's that consistency as you point out um, not necessarily the volume you know I've had experience meditating multiple hours per day versus doing something like rewire you know for a few minutes a day and both are very helpful so it's uh, like you said it's finding what works well for you and and I think being consistent as well yeah I think uh, people who know me will get sick of hearing this story so apologies to those people if they happen to listen uh, there's a great Buddhist saying that I love which is uh, everyone should meditate 15 minutes a day unless you don't have time then you should meditate for 30 minutes a day uh, and I think understanding that that is uh, is crucial to people is, you know, the days where you feel least like it is are the days you need it more, but also understand where you struggle, right? So the work I have to do personally on my health and wellness is, is the meditation, is the mindset recovery aspect of it. That, you know, I'm, there's no issue with me training. Like I can come off a plane, I can fly across the world 30 hours and I'll be happy to go for a run. But geez, if I got to sit down and meditate on a Sunday, it's like, oh, I don't know about that. So, you know, having something building into your day a way that you can force yourself to do that and, and be consistent with it um, is so crucial. So I think that's, that's super important. Nice. Uh, one last question uh, for those listening that, you know, the athletes out there that are trying to be their optimal self, any generic advice you could offer? I know everyone's different, but are there some advice you could offer? Your discussion around, this is something I've been more and more interested in. You just, you mentioned a little something before around um, managing life stress and, and understanding cumulative stress. I think we're really good at pointing at one stressor or one aspect of stress and saying that's the problem with my HRV or my whatever, right? Is, oh yeah, it was the alcohol I drank last night. And that's probably true, right? And there's also a big genetic component to HRV. This is, this is also true. But you'd be surprised the effect of things like the season or job you're working in or the whatever, right? So just thinking about more meta, low-grade chronic life stress is so important. And if you want to be any level of athlete, you've got to work towards having a life that is manageable day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. Like I live my life very consistently between the year and the days. Like my days look more similar than across a week than they do uh, anything else, right? So I try and do a little bit of work on the weekends, but then maybe not necessarily do as much work through the weekdays. I don't want these high stress five days, or these low stress two days. I want to sort of even that out similarly with months and years and those sort of things. And likewise with, um, my training is pretty similar is I try and keep it pretty consistent rather than having these boom or bust periods. So I'd say that, you know, managing yourself into a period where you can deal with that stress or, or managing your life, building a life such that you can deal with, what you're hoping to achieve, be that work stress, right? Is it, do I need to perform as a CEO of a company or is it, Hey, I actually need to be performing as a partner or a husband or a you know father or whatever it is you need to perform for. You need to make sure you build a life that allows you to perform in that. So you can't be, you know, some things just don't work. You, and sometimes you have to make a choice, but if you really want to succeed, you've, you've really got to make sure you're building a life that supports that, right? If you want to eat really well, you can't be having all sorts of junk food in your, in your fridge. It's not going to support that. Right, like it's it's a really simple example, but you can't be if you want to be really healthy from a dietary perspective, you probably should be cooking a lot of your meals or have someone you know cooking them. Right, it's not going to be about a bunch of takeout, uh, so you have to build a life that facilitates that. Be that Sunday food prep or something else, but you know you, you need to really engineer systems to allow you to to get towards where you need to be. Really great advice. Nice, awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, we've really enjoyed having you and. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. No, anytime. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Enjoyed it. Always enjoy chatting, training, and all the things. Uh, thanks, team. Thank you. Until next time. Thanks, David. We hope you enjoyed the conversation today with David Lippman. If you want to start building your mental fitness, check out Rewire Fitness, an evidence-based platform that helps athletes reach their full potential and avoid burnout. You can sign up for free by downloading Rewire Fitness from the app stores. Thank you.